Thank you. And thank you, uh, both Aaron and Jeanette. Those are really fascinating papers, and I think there will be some overlap with mine as well. In 1823, Advice to Young Mothers on the Physical Education of Children by a Grandmother was published anonymously. The language of the title highlights the text's central message of woman-to-woman -woman enfranchisement. An older and knowledgeable woman, a grandmother, speaking to younger women, mothers, in need of medical guidance. In the preface, the author writes that the book is really what it professes to be, the work of an old woman, and that she is anxious to diffuse among her own sex a species of knowledge, as the title of the conference, which may enable mothers to educate their children with better prospects of health and happiness, underlining how, by doing so, their lives will be improved and how much of the interest of their offspring depends upon their own attention. The author also highlights the special, the special knowledge that women already possess, writing that it is impossible that a male physician should ever have such experience of the momentary changes to which the infant brain is liable, as may be acquired by an observing mother or an attentive nurse, and which, were combined with a little bit or a moderate degree of scientific knowledge, would produce strong results. In the introduction, the author also acknowledges that her text may not be completely revolutionary or new. Rather, it is such a book as she would herself at the age of 20 like to have received as a valuable gift. Advice to Young Mothers is a handbook that combines medical efficiency and prudence relating to the experiences of pregnancy, birth, and childbearing, and raising a child from infancy to adulthood. It encourages young mothers to study not only the text, but also their child's well-being on a daily basis through a process of self-education, using the author as a mentor. While the text was published anonymously in 1823, the 1835 edition bore the author's name, Margaret Mason and Lady Mount Cashel, also known as Margaret King Moore. This case study has emerged from my recent research on women and enlightened bodies of knowledge in the Romantic period. Margaret Mason is interesting to me for her involvement in several public and literary realms as a political activist, a children's book author, a novelist, and a self-proclaimed and practicing physician. Um, and I have here on the left an image of her uh, sort of in her early life, in her um, late 20s, and then on the right at the time of the second edition of The Advice to Young Mothers. Um, in this paper, I'm going to offer a case study of a woman physician and medical author of the early 19th century, examining her training and her sense of identity as a physician and medical writer. I'll think about the transnational dimension of women's involvement in medicine in the late 18th and early 19th century, um, particularly thinking about the, the reasons why or the ways in which Mount Cashel was able to practice medicine in Italy rather than in Britain. And I'll consider forms of medical knowledge exchanged between women, not only through the publication of domestic medical texts, but also more informal and sociable textual practices. So beyond advice to young mothers, thinking about correspondence, giving medical advice, um, instructions on daily practice between friends and family, as well as memorandums and recipes created for use in the home, uh, to try and construct, uh, reconstruct Mount Cashel's medical life. I'll try to establish how advice, mentoring, and shared knowledge enabled women of the period an increased sense of agency over their own health and that of their children, and as active practitioners in the home and beyond. And then finally, hopefully, this is a lot of goals I realize now, um, I'll consider in 
practices contributed to women's sense of identity as medical practitioners and medical agents. So the roots of Margaret Mason's the roots of Margaret Mason's language of mentoring can be traced to her aristocratic childhood in Ireland. Mary Wollstonecraft, the proto-feminist author who would later go on to write *The Vindication of the Rights of Women*, happened to serve as governess to the Kingsborough family. Wollstonecraft drew on her experience of guiding and educating the young Margaret King, as Margaret Mason was then known, um, and her sister writing a didactic manual entitled Original Stories from Real Life, which touched on moral, physical, and charitable conduct, among other things, um, showing how these things could be acquired by leading through example. And I have a lovely um, frontispiece here, which was illustrated by William Blake in the second edition. Wollstonecraft's premature dismissal from the family, in part due to her sort of uh, radical principles, did not prevent her latent influence from taking hold over the Margaret's life trajectory. Despite entering into an ill-suited aristocratic marriage, expected of a woman of her station, she was extremely political, attending salons, publishing anonymous poetry and pamphlets, and engaging in debates surrounding the Irish Rebellion of 1798 and the subsequent Union Crisis of 1799-1800, supporting the Irish side against her family's interests. When Mason later traveled to the continent with her husband and children during the Peace of Amiens, she met her second partner, George Ty an agriculturist, choosing to give up her previous life and family, including her children, in exchange for an expatriate existence in Italy. She eventually settled in Pisa, adopting the name of Mrs. Mason at that time, after the fictional governess in original stories. She began a life of serious study and public authorship, indulging in a lifelong interest in medicine quite seriously, and other professional interests that seemed to embody Wollstonecraft's earlier call to action, that women take up professions in society. How many women thus waste life away the prey of discontent who might have practiced as physicians, regulated a farm, managed a shop, and stood erect, supported by their own industry, instead of hanging their heads to charge with the due of sensibility? It's a pretty good quote, yeah. <laughs> um, so thinking about training and qualifications um, and Mason's own sense of identity as a physician, which I'll talk more about, um, no evidence actually exists of any kind of formal medical training. I've looked through um, the two archives that are available uh, relating to her life. Uh, there is a third archive that is unfortunately in Italy and close to scholars at this time. It used to be um, available, but perhaps more information will become available at a later date. However, anecdotal evidence suggests that she may have disguised herself as a man to gain entry to public lectures at the University of Jena during time in Germany. She was quite tall, she was six feet tall. Um, the only evidence for this is in uh, letters written at a much later date by members of the Shelley Circle. But perhaps this uh, sort of disguise um, and cross-dressing wasn't necessary, considering the fact that in Italy there was an existing precedent of medical women attending university and practicing medicine. One example that I found quite interesting is the life and work of Maria Dalgon, uh, an Italian physician and a director eventually at the University of Bologna and the first woman to gain a, a doctorate in medicine in Italy. She published on female reproduction, fertility, and midwifery. So Dawn's training and accomplishments suggest that a potentially more supportive environment for women may have existed in Italy. Those with an interest in professional medical training and practice, it may have been more accessible than it was in Britain at the time. 
Mason's letters do indicate that she studied personally and quite frequently with Andre Baccia, a renowned Italian surgeon and a professor of surgery at the University of Pisa. Baccia and Mason maintained a lifelong professional and personal connection, discussing medical cases and texts that Mason was working on. Um, she would often seek advice from him, and they seemed to have maintained an ongoing relationship of tutelage that lasted for several decades. Anecdotal evidence um, also shows uh, Mason practicing medicine. One example I found quite interesting and just recently uh, is a text that was written by her daughter um, on the right, who wrote under the pen name Sarah. Um, and this was, is a, a historical novel about her mother and about her mother's life. And in it, an anecdote is given in which her mother is going around the town administering um, treatment to the children of the poor in Pisa, uh, who wait for her, crying, if anyone can save him, you can. And she treats them um, for, for different ailments, such as worms. So, so there's a bit of hyperbole um, in here, a worship of her late mother. But there's also some good examples of the kind of practices that Mason engaged in. Some other materials that I've used to uh, reconstruct um, the process by which she entered into thinking of herself as a physician come from private documents, which show the depths of Mason's knowledge in administering and manufacturing remedies. So I have this uh, example here, which is the earliest I can find from 1815, um, entitled A Memorandum on the Children. So this shows her ability to write uh, documents of instruction this is a piece of medical advice that was left um, what to be done in her absence should her two young daughters fall ill. She was particularly attached and to a protective of her two daughters that she had in Italy with her second marriage, having given up the children from her first relationship. And it may have been this kind of interest in their welfare and her own desire to take care of them in a way that she had not been able to when she was in an aristocratic position um, that brought about some of the ideas that ended up being printed in the advice to young mothers. There's an interesting um, connection here as well to regional remedies that may have highlighted some of the reasons to settle on the what you referred to as the Pisan Peninsula, as we have the use of squills, Dromia maritima, a coastal Mediterranean plant that's being administered. Um, this highlights the need to contact a medical doctor in certain cases, which foreshadows the tone of the advice that instructions should enable young mothers to offer care on a daily basis and up to a point in which a dangerous illness requires a trained physician, not necessarily a male physician. She never uh, suggests that in particular. The details of the document also foreshadow um, some of the instructions that are given in the advice to young mothers, which may have given her the idea to write the text in the first place, which came out eight years later. So we have here, um, the translation of bathing feet in warm water with mustard and vinegar, as well as syrup of poppies and squills to deal with um, cough and buildup of mucus and other complaints. Mason's correspondence has been really helpful to me as well in revealing the extent to which she identified herself as a physician, as well as the ways that she positioned um, and claimed her medical expertise, even among her family and friends. So these letters um, exchanged with Mary Shelley over a period of several years um, are particularly illuminating of the ways in which she disseminated medical advice. So writing to Mary Shelley during the illness of Shelley's friend Marianne Hunt, Mason asks her, does almond milk agree with Mrs. H? Both with the yolk of an egg and a few drops of lemon juice is sometimes agreeable to the stomach 
and milk mixed with both will agree when milk alone does not. And there are pages and pages of these kind of um, discussions and exchanges and Mason's letters mixed in with different anecdotes um, about publications and books and children and family and knowledge on um, family and friends that's being exchanged. She also highlights her qualification in this. She says, I mention all of these things both because as an invalid and as a physician, I've had experience of their advantage. Her letters also encourage Mary Shelley to self-educate and demonstrate how she'd like her book, Advice to Young Mothers, to be used as a tool. So prior to a long journey that Mary Shelley will be taking back to England to relocate there, Mason writes and hopes that Mary has received the grandmother's advice, as it may be of use in your long journey. Should little Percy get the whooping cough, whooping cough, that book would give you full instructions about how to manage him. She notes that she has lately cured another child, about a year old, with a similar um, remedy with the mixture of Hermes mineral. The corresponding remedy in the book also mentions the cure of the child. These anecdotes of success are not a mark of vanity, but rather a proof to try and gain trust in her ability. Writing in, in, a, in a previous letter kind of underlines that, that I am not at all sure that I should not myself be as good a physician for Mrs. Mr. S, so Mr. Prosecutor Shelley, as anyone else, were not the first requisite wanting, I mean the confidence of a patient. So this underlines, I think, the need and perhaps the difficulty that women with uh, a large amount of medical knowledge gained uh, are faced in trying to gain confidence in their skills as physicians. She writes at different times as well that she hopes that her advice will be trusted as an expert rather than just as an old woman with a bit of an interest in, in mixing up different liquids together. Other surviving documents that I've come across show her engagement in medical debates and the creation of medical knowledge, particularly pertaining to women. So she apparently comments um, on forthcoming publications, as you can see here with uh, the proof of an upcoming publication on the state of the poor in Italy. Um, I think that this shows the ways that Mason used her medical knowledge to intercede on behalf of women midwives at a time when their traditional role was increasingly being renegotiated and usurped by male obstetricians. So we see a bit of that as well with the Family Museum with Cadigan, um, with this idea that uh, women who are, even women who are trained in medical knowledge are not as skillful um, as men and that they can cause um, accidents and deformities and problems to occur. So this is actually um, a document that's in the New York Public Library collection that's listed as being written by Mount Cashel. But I, I don't think that it is because it's quite derogatory towards women and there's some very faint pencil footnotes where she's like, no, actually, that's not true. So the author of this says, we are inclined to suspect that instances of natural as well as of acquired deformity are in fact a very common occurrence among the inhabitants of the peninsula. And we believe the cause to be their extreme carelessness in the science of midwifery, but generally being practiced by women. And there's a little pencil cross there, underlined, and down below, uh, Mason has written, this is not true, for the midwives are very skillful, and it is a mistake to suppose the aid of men necessary. <laughs> so, however, I do think, and um, among all of her fantastic works that she wrote, although she was quite a lesser-known author of the Romantic period, um, the advice was her most important work, and she viewed it that way as well. Writing in the conclusion, she noted her hopes for the text. She wrote that it is her firm conviction that the most delicate infants may grow up healthy with constant and judicious attention. And she 
writes this text from her strong belief that if all children had the benefit of sufficient air, exercise and amusement, good moral discipline, habits of moderation, and regular occupation, great care, but little medicine and slight maladies, and strict obedience to skillful physicians and severe diseases, the happiness of mankind would be much augmented. Much augmented. Such instructions and advice, she hopes, may enable young mothers to direct the physical education of their children with success. So she envisions uh, this text contributing to healthy children, enfranchised and empowered mothers, and the general happiness of mankind. In a letter to Mary Shelley, Mason expanded upon her motivations for authoring the text. She wrote that the merit of the book may never be thoroughly known. This is at a moment uh, when she was not sure about the success of the text, and actually she had only seen a few copies of it and didn't, living in Italy, she was quite detached from the publication process. Um, and was, was hoping it was making an impact. But she has given about 40 copies away by 1825, and if they've only benefited 20 children, she's repaid for the trouble of writing it, she feels. The most important thing to her is imparting to others the knowledge she has obtained in 30 years of study, observation, and experience as a physician. Um, of the advice to young mothers, her friend, the very renowned surgeon, Vacha, commented, that it was a woman of good sense who studies the book will want no physician for her children, which to her uh, was the highest praise that could be possible, having her own mentor and a renowned physician uh, refer to it as, as something that would really help people in their daily lives. The book was extremely successful. Um, the second edition, as I mentioned, bore her name, but there were American, Italian, um, British, and French versions of the book printed and it continued to be in print throughout the 19th century. It had a transnational impact and an impact in Britain as well. Um, there's a, a version of it that's in the Morgan Library that was owned by the Rossetti family, in which Francis Rossetti, the scholar, educator, and mother to Dante and Christina, um, made pages and pages of marginal notes talking about the remedies and recipes and how they were used and how they helped her children. Um, in conclusion, I feel that this case study offers a really interesting example of a self-identified woman physician of the early 19th century. Through the advice to young mothers and her active giving advice um, on a more sort of quotidian basis, Mason was able to mentor countless young women, women by offering rational and empowering guidance, as Wollstonecraft had done for her. Her sense of self as a physician raises interesting questions, I think, about the extent to which composition and publication of medical writing constituted women's own sense of identity in the period, and raises questions about the vital role of sharing that knowledge and how that contributed to the identity of a specifically uh, female or woman physician, um, and how that knowledge had to be shared. Thank you very much.